It's a little after 8 a.m. on Wednesday, June 15th, 1955, in the town of Manalapan in Palm Beach County, Florida. Manalapan is a small community surrounded by the crystal blue waters of the Lake Worth Lagoon. With a population of only 26, it's a small slice of paradise for the lucky few who live here. A local handyman, Frank Ebersole, pulls up his truck at the home of local circuit court judge, Curtis Chillingworth. Frank has done work for the Chillingworths in the past, and this time, he's been commissioned to build a play area for the Chillingworths' grandchildren. Manalapan has an isolated feel to it, houses well-spaced out along beautiful beachfront. As Frank gets out of his truck, all he can hear is the whisper of waves washing up the beach on the far side of the house. He glances across at the garage, noting that both of the Chillingworths' cars are there. Frank walks up to the front door and raises one hand to knock, but suddenly stops mid-action. It's already open an inch. Puzzled, Frank pushes it open. He calls out as he steps inside, not wanting to alarm Curtis or Marjorie. He listens as he walks into the hallway, expecting to catch a faint conversation, sounds of breakfast being made or music from the radio, but all he hears are his own footsteps. Frank walks through to the wide back porch that faces out over the water. He's beginning to wonder if Curtis and Marjorie have forgotten he's coming over and headed out for a stroll along the beach when a twinkle of light stops him in his tracks. Shards of glass glitter in the early morning sunlight. And when Frank looks around the porch, he realizes it's the cover from one of the outdoor lights. An uneasy feeling settles over him and he scans the beach one last time before heading inside to use the phone. A quick call to the courthouse does little to settle his nerves. Frank speaks to Edna Trapp, Curtis Chillingworth's secretary. She confirms he hasn't arrived yet. He shrugs. Nothing much he can do until he speaks to Curtis about what he wants the play area to look like. So he heads on to his next job. Two hours later, Curtis's 10 a.m. appointment turns up at his chambers, but there's still no sign of the judge. It's out of character for a man known for his punctuality. And when his secretary mentions the earlier call from Frank, one of Curtis's colleagues gets concerned enough to call the local PD. Curtis is an important man around these parts, and a couple of officers are dispatched to his house immediately. They pull up to the two-story cottage on Ocean Boulevard. One of them wanders across to the garage, glancing through the window of Curtis's Plymouth, and sees that the keys are still in the ignition. The officers head inside, walking through to the porch, like Frank had done, spotting the broken glass. Unlike Frank, they head towards the steps that lead down to the beach. The only thing moving besides the waves are gulls that shriek as they swoop low across the surf. They haven't even set foot on the first one when the officer in front stops abruptly causing his partner to bump into him. He points down and both men stare at what can only be drops of dried blood. The trail continues down the dozen or so steps and onto the dusty path beyond. Has there been some kind of accident? Have the Chillingworths disappeared of their own free will or 
is there something more sinister at play? The trail fizzles out quickly. In the weeks and months that follow, police will try everything in their power to find the Chillingworths. But the answers won't come until years later, thanks to the drunken confession of a man who says he was there the night the judge disappeared. But the final chapter of the Chillingworths' disappearance won't be written until 1982, 27 years after they were last seen. A second confession from a fellow judge by the name of Joseph Peel, made days before his death, fills in the blanks of not just what happened to Curtis and Marjorie, but why. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Joseph Peel, of the words he spoke as he lay dying, about the disappearance that shocked a sleepy seaside town, a tale of two judges, one well-respected and a pillar of the community, the other suspected of breaking the very laws he swore to uphold. A man who would stop at nothing to achieve his ambitions. And the two confessions, decades apart, that finally told the full story of what happened to Curtis and Marjorie Chillingworth. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The Chillingworth name is synonymous with power in Palm Beach County before Curtis is even born. His grandfather, Richard Chillingworth, was mayor of West Palm Beach. And Charles Chillingworth, Curtis's father, was the first city attorney for West Palm Beach. Curtis Eugene Chillingworth is born on October 24th, 
1896 and follows in his father's footsteps, studying law at the University of Florida. He graduates a year early in 1917 and is admitted to the Florida bar, but instead of kickstarting his legal career, Curtis opts to serve his country first. He enrolls at the U.S. Naval Academy and serves as an ensign aboard the USS Minneapolis for the remainder of World War I until it ends in 1918. When he returns home, there's a place in his father's law firm waiting for him. But Curtis has ambitions beyond the family business. In 1921, aged just 25, he stands for election as a county judge and, despite his relative inexperience, wins the post. A little under two years later, in 1923, he becomes the youngest circuit court judge in Florida history at 26. This is a record that will probably never be broken. He quickly builds a reputation as a dedicated, diligent judge with a progressive outlook in equal opportunities cases. This is unusual in the 20s and earns him his fair share of detractors and enemies. Curtis remains in the Naval Reserves and when he gets the call in 1942, returns to active duty during World War II. He spends most of the next three years based in Plymouth, England, until he's discharged for the final time in 1945. His job has been held open while he serves his country and Curtis slots right back in. But the Florida he knows is changing. Organized crime is tightening its grip on the state, milking the lucrative numbers racket known as bolita, a type of lottery popular with a working class. Curtis Chillingworth doesn't mince his words when asked his opinion on the growing influence of organized crime in the state. He's quoted as saying that if the mob makes it as far as Palm Beach County, he'll do everything he can to bring them to justice. Many who take a stand against them wind up dead or simply disappear. Rumors fly around about witnesses disappearing in upcoming trials against the powerful Gambino crime family. People say they are taken out to sea and thrown overboard. None of this deters Curtis, however, and he stands by the battle lines he has drawn. But Florida wasn't exactly pure before the mob arrived. There are plenty of others looking to make a fast buck. Some of them even work in the legal profession. Joseph Peel is West Palm Beach born and bred. His father owns a local motel, but Peel has bigger plans. He studies law and becomes an attorney in 1949. Three years later, he becomes a part-time municipal judge alongside his law practice. Peel has always liked to be the center of attention and is known for his fine linen suits and flashy Cadillac. The life he leads isn't cheap, even for an attorney and Peel supplements his income by bending the very rules he swore to uphold. In his position as municipal judge, he is responsible for signing off warrants allowing police to raid gambling dens. Once officers leave to execute the warrants, Peel calls the crooks who run these operations and tips them off. Police arrive to empty premises and Peel is $500 richer each time. Ironically, though, it's not his more brazen illegal activity that gets him in trouble. He continues to practice law, specializing in divorce cases, and it's this that sets him on a collision course with the most senior judge in the area, Curtis 
Chillingworth. In 1953, Peel gets a slap on the wrist from Curtis for representing both husband and wife in a divorce case, an obvious conflict of interest. Curtis gives him a stern lecture about ethics and warns him that if he pulls anything like that again, he'll make sure Peel gets disbarred. Only two years later, in 1955, Peel makes another grave error of judgment. After Peel tells a client her divorce has gone through, she remarries and has a baby with her new husband. The truth is though, he never finalized her divorce. And in the eyes of the law, she's a bigamist. Understandably, she's extremely upset. If word of this reaches Curtis, Peel will be finished. Not only will he be disbarred, but his dreams of becoming state attorney, even governor one day, will be destroyed. Peel is backed into a corner. He's certain that his client will kick up a fuss and alert Curtis to his colossal mistake. He panics and makes a decision that will have catastrophic consequences for everyone involved. It's June 14th, 1955. 59-year-old Curtis Chillingworth and his wife Marjorie spend the evening at the house of Palm Beach County tax assessor James Owen. Over dinner, Curtis tells his friend about a cruise they're planning to take, a once-in-a-lifetime trip around the world. Marjorie is more excited at the prospect of her three girls coming to stay for a week at the beach house. The next year or two will be a big one for Curtis. A few months back, he informed the governor, Leroy Collins, that he intends to retire, although hasn't named a specific date. Curtis has plans that go far beyond what even a judge's salary can provide. He has invested wisely over the years, building up an impressive portfolio of land, including an undeveloped plot on the beach right here in Manalapan. It's a perfect relaxing evening with good wine and good conversation. A little after 10, the Chillingworths thank their hosts and head back to their beach house. James Owen doesn't know it, but he's the last person to see them alive. After Curtis fails to show up at work the next day, the alarm is raised. By mid-afternoon, after the trail of blood is found, over a hundred officers swarm through the Chillingworth beach house, trying to piece together what's proving to be a confusing scene. What could possibly keep a man as dedicated to his work as Curtis away from court without telling anyone where he was headed? Some speculate that the couple might have gone for a swim and gotten into some kind of trouble, but officers find their bathing suits dry and unused. It doesn't look like a robbery. Not only are the keys still in the Plymouth, but Curtis's wallet has a wad of cash in it, as does Marjorie's purse. There's plenty at the house to concern them, though. To add to the broken porch light and trail of blood leading to the beach, officers find two used rolls of duct tape, one in the living room and another in the sand. Several boats, as well as a helicopter from Palm Beach Air Force Base, crisscross the bay for several square miles. Drivers are dropped in to search underwater, but they all come up empty-handed. Governor Collins personally arranges for the state's top pair of investigators to be assigned to the case. The man heading up the local faction is Sheriff John Kirk. Kirk is a controversial figure, plagued by allegations of corruption. 
Some go as far as to say he has participated in racially motivated killings, but nothing has ever been proven. Kirk was re-elected numerous times in spite of the controversy and has served for 15 years. Regardless, it's immediately apparent that there are shortcomings in how the Chillingworth investigation is handled. With so many officers on site, it's hard to establish a sense of control over who does what. When the story hits local and national press, pictures show officers wandering casually through the crime scene before the forensics team has arrived to gather evidence. The search continues for days. Curtis and Marjorie's three daughters cling onto a faint hope that this is all a horrible misunderstanding, that their parents will appear alive and well. But as days turn into weeks, the trail goes cold. Police look closely at a number of suspects, some of whom have previously been handed prison sentences by Curtis. One such man is Charles Nelson, who Curtis handed a 20-year sentence for murder back in 1931. Could the freshly released jailbird have decided to take vengeance? As desperate as they are to make an arrest, no evidence turns up to link Nelson to the supposed crime other than his grudge against Curtis. As the weeks drag on, police are forced to admit that the disappearance has them stumped. In 1957, Two years after their disappearance, Curtis and Marjorie Chillingworth are declared legally dead. Their daughters arrange for an empty double grave with twin headstones so that they have some sort of focal point for their grief. The three daughters finally bring themselves to sell their parents' house and issue a standing offer of a $25,000 reward for anyone who can provide information that confirms what happened to their parents the state of Florida votes to approve an additional $100,000 reward that will stay valid until the case is solved. But after two years of zero progress, nobody is getting their hopes up. Little do they know that in just one year, the first clue to the Chillingworth's baffling disappearance will surface from the most unexpected of places. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. On November 3rd, 1958, in a seemingly unconnected killing, a thread that links back to the Chillingworth case appears. A small-time bootlegger named Lou Harvey fails to return home one evening. Two days later, he's fished out of a canal, his body weighed down with chains and a single bullet wound to his head. 
his wife recalls that he had gone to meet a friend that evening by the name of John Lynch. That's a name police recognize as a known alias used by Floyd Holzapfel, known to his friends as Lucky. Lucky is a walking contradiction. On one hand, he's a decorated paratrooper and a war hero, a former member of the Oklahoma Police Department, organizer of the West Palm Beach Young Republican Club, and scoutmaster. On the other hand, he served time for bookmaking and armed robbery. Police don't manage to pin Harvey's murder on Lucky, but in the course of the investigation, they look back through his rap sheet. Another interesting name pops up, a certain former judge called Joseph Peel. A few years back, in December 1956, Lucky had been arrested for attempted murder. The intended victim was Peel's law partner, Harold Gray. Peel had driven his partner to a tavern where Lucky was waiting and beat Gray to within an inch of his life. The motive? A $100,000 insurance policy on Gray's life that Peel would receive. After a long, protracted investigation and trial, charges were ultimately dropped on the condition that Peel resigned from the bar. The connection is enough to make police wonder if this wasn't the first time Peel and Lucky had conspired to commit murder. It was no secret that Peel had resented the condemnations he'd received from Curtis. Could he have roped Lucky into a plan to make the judge simply disappear? Investigators dust off the Chillingworth case to take another look, but when the first real break comes, it isn't so much through their hard work, but Lucky's own arrogance. In September 1959, Lucky is out drinking with a friend, James Yenzer. Somehow, the topic of the Chillingworth's disappearance comes up and Lucky tells Yenzer that he knows what happened to them. Man, he says, there's a hole out there in the ocean that nobody's found the bottom of. And names Joseph Peel as the man who had ordered their deaths. Yenzer, as it turns out, is also friends with Peel. To his surprise, when he tells Peel of Lucky's allegations, he offers Yenzer $8,000 to kill Lucky. Yenzer, put on the spot, agrees, but has other ideas. He leaves Peel and goes straight to the Florida Sheriff's Bureau. He tells them everything and agrees to help them get the evidence they need. After months of preparation in late September 1960, Yenzer invites Lucky to a drink with him at a local hotel. He brings a friend, former policeman turned bail bondsman's Jim Wilbur, and they proceed to ply Lucky with alcohol. If Lucky says anything incriminating, it won't be a case of their word against his. The room they're in is wired and next door, a police officer is listening to and recording their every word. The men drink for three days straight, but unbeknownst to Lucky, his companions pour most of theirs down the drain. Whatever good fortune brought Lucky his nickname is about to run out. Throughout the three-day bender, Lucky has danced around Wilbur and Yenzer's questions, dropping hints of his involvement, but stopping short of outright admitting he had anything to do with the Chillingworth's disappearance. Exasperated, Jim Wilbur decides to give him a firmer nudge. 
He tells Lucky that he had Peel pegged as being behind their disappearance back when it happened. He claims he confronted Peel and that the judge had looked him square in the eye and said, it was either that SOB or me. It's all the encouragement Lucky needs. And once he starts talking, he tells the whole tale. Every last detail of it is caught on tape next door, incriminating not only him, but two others. One is a friend of his, Bobby Lincoln. The other is the man he claims is behind it all, the man who paid him to kill Curtis Chillingworth, Joseph Peel. According to Lucky, this is what allegedly happened that fateful night in June 1955. In the days leading up to June 14th, Lucky got a call from an irate-sounding Peel, demanding to meet him and his partner, Bobby Lincoln. Lucky and Lincoln ran a numbers racket together and had often benefited from Peel's tip-offs, so anything that hurt Peel hurt their business too. A man is trying to ruin us, he told the two men, referring to Curtis Chillingworth, and I have got to kill him. Peel drove Lucky and Lincoln around town so he could point Curtis out and to the beach house so they could case the place. Peel even came up with a plan of how to murder Curtis. And if there's no body and no confession, there can be no conviction. Lucky bought a small boat and on the night of June 14th, 1955, he and Lincoln pushed off from the Blue Heron docks in nearby Riviera Beach. There was no small talk as their boat slid quietly through the waters of the bay. The two men passed a bottle of whiskey back and forth, stealing themselves for what's to come. A blanket of clouds smothered the moonlight, helping to mask their approach. As they worked their way along the shoreline, a white smudge emerged from the darkness. Lucky strained his eyes and seconds later, recognized it as Curtis's beach house. He signaled to Lincoln to kill the engine, and the two rode the remaining hundred yards or so to the shore. They pulled the boat onto the beach so it was not visible to anyone looking out from the house. The dark windows staring back at them suggested nobody was awake, but they didn't want to take any chances. The two men worked their way around to the front of the house, and Bobby Lincoln crouched behind a nearby bush as Lucky stepped forward to knock on the door. A minute or so later, it opened, and a tired-looking Curtis Chillingworth stared out at him. Lucky had a story rehearsed and started telling Curtis how he was a captain on a yacht that was in trouble out on the bay and that he needed a phone to call for help. His eagerness to get on with things got the better of him, though. He stopped halfway through his story, whipped out a pistol from under his shirt, and told the bemused judge that it was a holdup. He asked if anyone else was inside, to which Curtis replied there was. Then call them out, he ordered. Curtis called for Marjorie, and moments later she emerged, pulling on a robe over her nightgown. Lincoln picked this moment to step out from his hiding place, smashing the porch light, before helping Lucky to bind the petrified couple's wrists with duct tape. They marched their captives down the steps towards the beach. Marjorie tried screaming for help, but Lucky slammed the butt of his gun against her head, opening up a gash that bled all over the path. 
they dragged the boat back into the water and bundled the Chillingworths on board before pushing off into the bay. They hadn't gone far before the engine stalled, clogged with sand from having been dragged up the beach. Lucky turned it off and the boat drifted for almost an hour. While he and Lincoln tried to decide what to do next, Curtis attempted to reason with them. He offered the pair $200,000 if they just returned to shore and let him and his wife walk free. Boy, Curtis told Lincoln, if you take care of us, you will never have to work again. It was way more than the $8,000 Peel was paying them, but the two didn't take Curtis up on his offer, perhaps fearing he'd run straight to the police if they let him go. After several more minutes of drifting, and for reasons known only to him, Curtis showed them how to restart the motor. They headed several miles out before Lucky eased off the throttle. He and Lincoln worked fast, grabbing two heavily weighted army belts and strapping them to a stunned Curtis and Marjorie. Lucky looked from husband to wife, then winked at Marjorie. Ladies first, he said, and lifted her to her feet. Honey, Curtis called out to her. Remember, I love you. I love you too, she said. And before either of them could say another word, Lucky shoved her overboard. Fully clothed and with the additional weight strapped to her, Marjorie slipped below the surface almost immediately. Only a small trail of bubbles that popped to the surface marked the spot where she had sank. Lucky turned his attention to Curtis next, but the judge didn't go as easy. He took matters into his own hands, throwing himself overboard. The naval veteran was a strong swimmer, and even with his hands bound together, stayed afloat with relative ease. He tried to swim away, but Lucky restarted the boat and they caught up to him in seconds. Lincoln leaned over the side, hammering at Curtis's head with a shotgun. He hit him so hard that the barrel broke, but the dazed judge continued to stay afloat. Exasperated at his refusal to join his wife beneath the waves, Lucky hauled Curtis back aboard the boat. Lincoln held him down while Lucky tied a 25-pound anchor around the judge's neck. They heaved him back into the water, and this time, not even Curtis could fight gravity. They shined flashlights on the surface and watched as he slipped below, fading into the dark water of the bay. Lucky restarted the motor one last time, and the pair headed back to Riviera Beach. They stashed the boat and went their separate ways. Lucky had one stop to make on his way home. He popped a dime into a payphone and dialed a number he had committed to memory. In his house nearby, Joseph Peel answered the call. He'd been in all night watching a game show to establish an alibi. Always careful, Lucky delivered the pre-agreed coded message to confirm the job was done. The motor has been fixed, he told Peel, casually confirming a double homicide as if it was no more than patching up a car. After Lucky finishes his story, Jim Wilbur and James Yenzer sit in stunned silence. They hope he would drop in something incriminating they could use to kickstart the investigation but nobody had expected such a detailed blow-by-blow account. Every last word of Lucky's unwitting confession is caught over 30 tapes. The next morning, 
Saturday, October 1st, 1960, investigators break down the door of the room Lucky passed out in. He's taken into custody and investigators begin building their case. Now they set their sights on Peel, but he gets wind that police are looking for him and leaves town. Luckily, he only manages to stay hidden for a month before being picked up in Chattanooga. When he's finally apprehended, Peel maintains his innocence. I'm innocent, he claims. I want to go back to Florida as quickly as possible so I can have a speedy trial and clear myself. Bobby Lincoln is far easier to find. He's currently serving time for running moonshine. Florida State Attorney Phil O'Connell approaches him with an offer. Lucky could turn around and claim he made the whole thing up, so O'Connell needs an eyewitness to stand a chance of getting any convictions. If he testifies against Lucky and Peel, Lincoln will be offered full immunity for the murders. Lucky does indeed try to recant his confession, telling reporters, It'll be a damn dirty shame if they execute me for the Chillingworths. They might come home next week. When word reaches him of Lincoln's deal though, the last of his bravado is stripped away. In a hearing on November 7th, 1960, he breaks down in tears to a packed courtroom. He tells them that everything in his taped confession is true. He walks them through it step by step right down to chilling details like the surprisingly small amount of air bubbles that came up after Marjorie sank. There's one thing he hadn't talked about back in the hotel room though, an extra revelation that's too close for comfort for the state attorney O'Connell. It didn't stop there, Lucky tells O'Connell. The fact is, just a short time after Judge Chillingworth was murdered, Joe Peel drove me to another house in West Palm, your house. He wanted you killed. On December 12th, 1960, Lucky formally pleads guilty to both murders. But the judge defers sentencing until after Joseph Peel's trial, and Peel isn't going down without a fight. During Lucky's trial, Peel kept busy. Twice, he allegedly tried to bribe inmates to kill Lucky. The first time with poisoned cigarettes, the second time with a gun. Neither allegation can be proven though. His case eventually goes to trial in March, 1961. Peel is to be tried separately for the deaths of Curtis and Marjorie. The very notion of a judge ordering a hit on another judge has dominated the headlines for weeks. To try and ensure a fair trial, the venue is moved outside West Palm Beach, 60 miles north to Fort Pierce. Every single one of the hundred seats available is filled throughout the trial. Peel claims he had played no part of the murders and that Lucky and Lincoln are trying to set him up because Lucky believed Peel had slept with his wife. But the jurors don't buy his story. On March 30th, 1961, they take just five hours and 24 minutes to pronounce Peel guilty of accessory to murder. During deliberations, two jurors said they would vote to convict only if Peel were spared the electric chair. As a result, he receives a life sentence. Prosecutors move straight onto the second trial, but this time, Peel changes his plea. He opts to plead no contest rather than not guilty to the charge of accessory to murdering Marjorie. He gets his second life sentence, despite never formally admitting to either crime. Despite his refusal to admit guilt, the Chillingworth's daughters at least now know what happened to their parents, however heartbreaking. 
they can finally put their ghosts to rest. Lucky fares worse when it comes to sentencing. He's sent to death row in Rayford Prison to await execution, although this is later commuted to a life sentence on appeal. Bobby Lincoln serves out his moonshine sentence, changes his name, and lives out his days in relative obscurity in nearby Riviera Beach. Peel also serves his sentence in Rayford and by all accounts is a model prisoner. He attends church service at the prison chapel every Sunday and works on the prison newspaper. What remains of his life outside the prison walls is something of a roller coaster. After his wife divorces him, Peel begins a relationship from behind bars with a woman who had been a flower girl at his wedding. He stays in Rayford until 1982 when he's diagnosed with terminal cancer and he's paroled on compassionate grounds. He has plans to marry his new love and moves into her house in Jacksonville, Florida. Time, however, is not on Peel's side. His health begins to deteriorate fast. He knows he hasn't got long left and in late 1982, makes a call to the Miami Herald, telling them he wants to talk about the Chillingworth case. Tim Pallison is the journalist who goes out to see him. In all the years that have passed, Peel has still never admitted to his part in the Chillingworth's murders. Could this be an exclusive that provides the final chapter in the decades-old case? It certainly seems that way when Peel opens up by saying, there's no one to blame but myself. He admits to taking payoffs from those who ran gambling and moonshine in West Palm Beach. One local nightclub owner who Peel won't name had been hoping to use Peel's influence to allow gambling in Palm Beach clubs. I was one of his fair-haired boys, Peel says, the one who would go up in the judiciary, but I was too greedy and too anxious. Peel talks of the plans he'd had to use his judgeship as a springboard to the governor's mansion. When Pallison asks him about the murders, though, Peel stops short of a full confession. Instead, he says that while he didn't plan them, he knew what Lucky and Lincoln were going to do. The only thing he is guilty of, he says, is doing nothing to stop them. When Pallison runs the story, few who read it believe Peel's claims that he hadn't been the one pulling the strings. But the fact he's already served his time means there's no open investigation that could follow up on the article. As it turns out, the interview with Pallison is the last time Peel will ever speak about the case. Only nine days after he meets the journalist, Peel loses his battle with cancer. Having never fully admitted to any part of the murder of Curtis and Marjorie Chillingworth, Judge Joseph Peel's exact involvement in their disappearance remains a mystery. Before Judge Chillingworth got in his way, the plan was for Peel to permit gambling houses when he became Palm Beach County's state attorney. In his confession to the press, Peel shared his dream that had ended in ruins. Then I was to go from state attorney to attorney general to governor, he said. In the end, chasing that dream meant he swapped a life in the governor's mansion for a life behind bars. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Dr. James Barry, one of Britain's leading army surgeons in the 19th century. 
he traveled all across the vast empire, introducing revolutionary changes to medicine and providing leading treatment in outbreaks of deadly diseases. He even had an illicit affair with a wealthy British aristocrat and made a fierce enemy in Florence Nightingale. But after Barry died, a monumental secret escaped that shocked every corner of the empire and changed medicine forever. Dr. Barry was a woman. At a time when females were barred from both medicine and the armed forces, Barry had reached the most senior ranks in each. But how had this woman deceived the world for 57 years? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, series produced by Addison Nugent, written by Rob Scrag, supervising editor Kevin Pham, sound design by Matias Torresole, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley, 